Andy Smith here. Welcome to episode 83 of the Practical NLP podcast. Something a bit different this week. Uh, instead of me interviewing uh, an eminent figure in NLP, uh, it's somebody else interviewing me. In fact, it's Deb Johnston, an NLP success coach based in Cairns City in Australia. Deb specializes in coaching women business owners and helping them to be more effective and less stressed. So uh, this interview is largely about how you can apply principles of NLP in your daily life and indeed your work to be more effective. This one, uh, it's quite a long interview, so we're actually doing it in two halves. The first one is about the principle that, or presupposition, as uh, the NLP jargon has it, that the map is not the territory. So here it is. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Deb Johnston and welcome to Better Balance, Greater Business. I'm holding this summit because like you, I'm in business and I want to show you how you can increase productivity, have more energy and live a more peaceful, fulfilled and balanced life while still achieving even more success in your business. Today, I'd like to introduce Andy Smith. Andy is an NLP trainer and an appreciative inquiry facilitator from the UK living in rural France. Andy is the host of the Practical NLP podcast series and author of several books on NLP and emotional intelligence. He trains executives and, leader, executives and leaders in emotional intelligence in the UK, in the Middle East and in Southeast Asia. I'm so happy Andy can join us because he's going to be talking about the principles of NLP and how by adopting them, we can experience more success in our life and in our business. Andy, welcome. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you, Deb. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Fantastic. Andy, we, we have talked a lot about NLP before. It's, it's an area that I'm really passionate about and that I work in as well. Um, so I could talk all day about NLP. I'd love, you, I'd love it if you could share with our viewers a bit about you and your story and how you came to be doing what you're doing. Okay, yeah. Um, so about, oh, well, 25 years ago now, um, I was working in IT originally, and I've been doing that for about 12 years. And um, I don't know if any of your listeners are in this, or viewers are in this position. Um, I really wasn't interested in what I was doing. Uh, it's one of those things where you're working to make money, um, because you don't really know what else you want to do. Um, and the IT industry being what it was, I kind of rose reasonably well and got promoted and so on. I was doing okay after 12 years, but I always felt like I was faking it. Um, yeah. I have that imposter syndrome going on, but it, I, I think technically imposter syndrome is when somebody is actually good at something, but they think they aren't. Um, so maybe this wasn't quite, I, I wasn't good at it and um, I, I kind of knew I wasn't and always felt one day I was going to get found out. And uh, one day I was, a project that I was on didn't go very well, and I was in the frame for that. And, and 
I thought I've got to get out of this industry. I've, I've got to stop doing this thing that I'm not very good at just for the money because uh, life was just going to work, um, making money, trying to distract myself with um, going out and chasing women and getting drunk and all that sort of stuff, which wasn't brilliant. Uh, anyway, it was, it was brilliant in moments, but uh, large stretches in between it wasn't. And um, I thought, I've got to get out of this industry. And uh, I saw an advert in a broadsheet, respectable broadsheet newspaper for, uh, it said, stress auditors earn um, 300 to 600 pounds a week. When Back when that was quite a lot of money for 10 to 20 hours a week work. Mm. So I thought, great, I'm stressed. I can relate to that. I'm sure I'd be really, really good at that. Uh, you know, I care about people and so on. And uh, so I answered it and it turned out what it was, were, it wasn't that at all. It was actually a uh, hypnotherapy course. It was a train to be a hypnotherapist and stress counselor course. And they said become a stress auditor on the, on the back of one tiny little contract that they got for their hypnosis graduates with one little financial institution uh, where you um, the hypnotherapist was like a, an on-site stress counsellor that mm. came in once a week and people come and see them. And on the strength of that, they put out this entire national campaign. So it was a, it was a hypnotherapy course and it was a very bad one, I discovered later, and actually a really expensive one. But I didn't know that at the time because there was no internet back in those days. So you couldn't really check and compare things and get people's opinions and so on. Um, so I did this course and although the training was really bad, um, NLP practitioners uh, among your audience, if I tell you there was no mention whatsoever of Milton Erickson on this course, <laughs> uh, that, that's what it was like. So it was like old fashioned direct hypnosis. So even though the training wasn't very good, I, I quit my job. I started up as a hypnotherapist and I found actually I was, I was quite good at it. And being good at your job is, it was a new feeling for me. It was, it was lovely. It was great. So I was always looking for better ways to um, help my clients and improve on this training that even then I could see wasn't great. And I met a couple of NLP practitioners who really impressed me on a personal level. I thought, right, I'll have some of this. So I sought out um, NLP training in London. Uh, I found this amazing lady called Amy Chu, who's since retired from NLP and did a practitioner course with her back in 95, master practitioner in 96, trainers training with Tad James in 97. And I started using NLP with my clients. Um, so it got to the point where they came in, we were just doing NLP and maybe I'd do a little bit of hypnosis at the end just to, uh, because they were expecting some, you know. Uh, just to kind of put the icing on the cake and getting really good results with them, certainly compared to what I was getting before. So that was great. And then gradually moved into, obviously, um, since I qualified as an NLP trainer, training other people. Um, and round about this time, coaching was coming in as well. Um, people were doing these telephone courses with Coach University, Coach U in the States. I didn't know what this was, but some of my friends were doing it. And the more I looked into it and the more I read about it, uh, I thought, oh, actually, this is stuff that we could do with NLP anyway. I don't need to do this extensive other training. And looking at some of the questions they were asking, some of the questions that these 
people who trained in coaching didn't know how to answer some of the things they couldn't do. I thought, actually, NLP's got this already. We, we, can, uh, we can do better here. So I started doing executive coaching as well and uh, more and more kind of corporate training. And now I do more corporate training than anything else. Plus I, I also moved into appreciative inquiry uh, facilitation and also training other people to be facilitators. Um, we moved to France about six years ago. The intention was that I would stop doing face-to-face training, stop doing one-to-one coaching, just produce knowledge products, books, online courses, and so on. Uh, as it's turned out, I'm doing more face-to-face training than ever, <laughs> most of it in Malaysia and uh, the Middle East, but UK market's picking up again now, which is great. Um, so you never know how life's going to turn out, but we are gradually step-by-step creating the life we want and, and having a great time here in uh, rural France, which is, which yeah. is beautiful. You see the, the barn behind me here, um, which, uh, which I'm in. And, um, we've got this amazing house and land for similar price to what you pay for like a two up, two down little terrace house in the North of England. So depending on where you are in the world, you can still get um, a great life. It's like, uh, I think Tim Ferriss is a big advocate for this, go where stuff is uh, cheap and lifestyle is good. And uh, that's what we've done. So, yeah. so yeah, here we are. Sounds fantastic. And it does look amazing behind you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, 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 and the key thing is I love my job as well, which, is, which has a huge effect on whether you're good at it, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When you really love something, it's not really work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, bits of it maybe, but um, when you actually get to do the parts that you love, it's, it's all worth it. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a, a fantastic journey and um, yeah, a really interesting one, that first course you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, for the first NLP course I did, you know, bits of it were challenging uh at the time and looking back i i wonder you know why was i asking some of those questions but that's where i was at the time and you do learn you do evolve you do get challenged uh, the nlp trainers training was the toughest thing i've ever done i think and, uh, but every tough thing you do and you get past it it builds your confidence and a lot of things that used to be challenges aren't challenges anymore and you can go on to like bigger and better challenges yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. I, I have to say you know, my NLP training was probably one of the big life changes for me, massive huh. life changes. So I'm really pleased that you're going to be talking about that today, um, about the principles of NLP and, and how effective they are in increasing success. So I'm, I'm okay. wondering, can you share with our viewers what NLP is and what the, what the principles are and why they're so effective? Okay. Um, well, NLP has been gifted by its founders, Richard Bandler and John Grinder, with one of the least marketing-friendly names, I think, in full neuro-linguistic programming. Um, you can see why I tend to prefer to call it NLP if I can get away with it, um, because it makes it sound really technical and really scientific, or if you're a scientist, pseudoscientific, um, and it makes it sound possibly manipulative. So neuro is just the, um, the nervous system, the brain, and uh, your 
senses. Linguistic is just language, the way we talk, how that influences how we think, including things like body language, how we represent the world to ourselves, how we communicate with other people. And the programming bit of it is, is the bit that I think really um, can mislead people. It comes from NLP was developed in the 70s when the primary metaphor for how the brain works was uh, computers. And nowadays, of course, we realize the brain's a bit more complex than that. And they're trying to make computers that work like the human brain rather than the other way around. But um, programming sounds really quite, it can sound quite sinister. And I think sometimes it can attract people for the wrong reasons, you know, like, uh, lonely young men who think um ah programming get people to do uh, what they don't want to do <laughs> like that. I'll have some of that. Um, it's not that at all really programming is um it's just our mind largely works in habitual patterns we tend to do things the same way every time we do them so we've got strategies for getting ourselves up in the morning we've got strategies for being for problems as well, for like being late for work, whatever. Uh, in fact, let me let me just try a little thought experiment or a little action experiment with uh, with the viewers now. If you do this as you're watching, uh, if you fold your arms, okay, there we go. Fold your arms. Now you'll notice probably that one of your hands is on top of one of your arms, and the other hand is probably tucked under the other arm. Right. Yeah. So. So, so your arms are folded in a particular way. What I'd like you to do is to fold your arms the opposite way. Mm. Go on, have a go. Now, Ooh. ten to five. This is a great way, by the way, if you're giving any sort of like personal development talk and you've got a skeptical audience and they're all sitting there with their arms folded, this is a good way to get them to loosen up a bit. Uh, we tend to find three things. Some people end up with their arms folded the same way as they started. They just can't do it. Some people, you find them going still round and round with their, their arms like that um, for quite a while. And some of them do manage it. Uh, and when you've got your arms folded the opposite way, it feels really strange. Yeah, it does. Yeah? So yeah. anyway, <laughs> you can unfold your arms. <laughs> That did, um, my arms were going a bit like that for a while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and then they finally settle and they feel really strange. Mm. Um, and, and the reason it feels strange is probably every time in your life you've folded your arms, you've done it exactly the same way. Have it, have it, have it. So your brain doesn't need to think about it. You don't need to think, right, I'm going to tuck this hand under this arm and this hand over that arm. You don't need to think about it. It just happens automatically. So yeah. when you do it a different way, it feels really strange, especially the first few times you do it. So that would be like your little program for folding your arms. So the things that people are good at, they have really good mental programs for getting that result. Um, when people have problems, they have mental problems, uh, mental strategies, programs for getting to where they get to, but unfortunately the result isn't something they want. Yeah. And if you change that program, if you find out what they're doing in their minds and in their actions to get that result, you can usually find a place where you can just make a little tweak to it, a little adjustment to that program uh, with the minimum disruption and they get a better result. That's what NLP is about. It's about finding out how people do things and if they're really good at doing those things, then you can codify what they're doing into uh, strategies and models that you can teach to other people so they can get similar results. 
if they're having problems, uh, like if they're therapy or coaching therapy clients particularly, uh, you can find out where their programs are going wrong and encourage them to fix them. And people feel empowered as a result and they get better results in their lives. Yeah, love it. That's NLP. That's how I like to explain it. Yeah, it's a great explanation. Yeah, I love yeah. it. Yeah. So, so the the principles of NLP. Can you? I know there's a few of them. So there's there's quite a lot depending on who. Yeah, there's maybe twelve or fourteen depending on depending on who you consult. Mm. Um, yeah. So, um, by the way, NLP buffs, NLP purists. Uh, what I'm talking about here is the presuppositions of NLP, but I didn't want to use that word because it's jargon. And people would then have to have explained what, what, what's a presupposition. Um, presupposition is just something you have to assume is true in order to make sense of something. It's already presupposed in what's being said. But everyone knows what principles are, and it's close enough. So, um, yeah, my, my first NLP book, first practical NLP book um, in the practical NLP series is about how to use the principles of NLP uh, in order to get better results in your work and your life, even if you're not NLP trained, or yeah. sometimes I say NLP trained yet on the presupposition that they will eventually get trained in NLP. Mm. Um, yeah, so there's, there's some really, really important principles. And uh, the first one, perhaps the most important one, is this idea that the map is not the territory. What this actually means is everything that we know about the world, we take in through our senses. And before we even become aware of what that sensory input is, when we look at something, before we even make sense of what we're seeing, that information has already been through our mental filters that we're not necessarily consciously aware of. Uh, mental filters will be things like our beliefs, our values, um, associations with past experiences, uh, what we habitually pay attention to. So, for example, you might be somebody who notices the big picture and you're like a big picture person. And then you might meet someone else who's a, a detail person and they're really, really focused on, on little tiny details. Those two people may have difficulty communicating if they stay stuck in big picture on one hand and details on the other, they need to kind of move a little bit towards each other in order to communicate successfully. So what we're experiencing right now, um, if you're sitting at home or in your office uh, watching this video, uh, watching this interview, then um, you will be experiencing something, but it's not reality because we can never know the whole of reality. By the time we become aware of it, it's already been filtered. Mm. So there you are watching, watching this interview. And until I mentioned it, were you aware of the pressure of the chair against your back, the temperature of the air on your forehead, the changing patterns of light in the room, whatever background noise there is out there, um, even the pressure of your eyelids each time you blink. Um, now, usually people aren't aware of all of those. They might have been aware of one or two. Until I mention it, you're not aware of it. You just kind of filter it out. Yeah. So there are things that we notice and pay attention to, 
and there are things that we don't notice or we screen out um, or with the thing that psychologists call confirmation bias if we believe something then we tend to notice any evidence that comes in that supports that belief and we tend to downgrade explain away or not even notice in the first place anything that doesn't support that belief so the belief kind of creates its own evidence over time you know if you like somebody then anything you do that anything they do you will tend to view in a positive light and even something that's sort of neutral you would tend to view that favorably somebody you didn't like that did the exact same thing you tend to put a negative spin on so we filter our experience and what we end up with is what in nlp is called uh, an internal representation of the world it's our kind of mental picture of the world what we're experiencing right now and it bears the same relation to objective reality out there as a map does to the territory that it's a map of and the map isn't uh you know if you think of like a google map on your phone right um just the bit showing the roads uh, let's not go into the satellite view that's not showing the whole of reality it's not showing um, height above sea level it's not showing languages spoken in that area it's not showing the temperature it's not showing the prevailing wind it's not showing the animal species it's not showing the population density or the religions practiced by those people it's not showing like bird migrations there's loads and loads and loads of things that it's not showing mm. but in order to be useful, it is showing you the roads. If it showed all that other stuff, you, you wouldn't be able to find your way around. You, you, know, you might as well just look at the world outside because that's all the information it would be showing you. The thing about our mental maps is, it's not so much, is it true, is it correct? It's, is it useful? Is it helping the person? Is it helping you to find your way around the world and get to where you want to go? So people have different mental maps. There's obviously an overlap, but everyone will see the world slightly differently from how you do. We run into trouble if we think everyone else has the same mental map as us mm. because they're making the best decisions they can from their map of the world. We're making the best decisions we can from our map of the world. Sometimes they will do something that doesn't make any sense to us because um, they're operating off a slightly different map. And if we think everyone's got the same map, we'll think that person is crazy or that person is evil. Uh, they're doing something really bad here. They're not, they're doing their best, but they've just got a different map of the world. I mean, even somebody, let's think of a really bad person. Um, can we all agree Hitler wasn't <laughs> that great of a guy? Uh, there'll be some people, what, Hitler? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, don't don't diss my man Hitler. They're thinking um, you're not my target audience. You can uh, you can get lost. Um, Neo Nazis, bye bye. Uh, even Hitler was doing his best, given his really strange, distorted, crazy, messed up map of the world. He was he was doing the best he could. Um, could, could do better, but um, he was doing the best he could. Uh, so. If you really get that the map is not the territory, um, you can stop judging people so much and stop feeling upset when they do something that you wouldn't do. 
Um, the other the other thing that people uh, can really go wrong with this map of the world thing is if they think everyone else should have the same map of yeah. the world as they do. Now, actually, as human beings, we can never know the full truth. You know, we can learn from other people. Other people have different perspectives. Mm. So what I would encourage people to do with their own map of the world, if you want to expand it, if you want to make it richer, uh, because we... We start out, you know, like those those medieval maps of the world where Australia wasn't on it yet because they hadn't discovered it and the continents are all sort of funny shapes because they only had a vague idea of the outline. And the further out you get from wherever the map was written, further away you get from Europe usually, uh, you start to get into these blank spaces on the map. Um, and there'll usually be a, a legend on the map like here be dragons or something like that. So people think, uh, you know, those regions are really scary. Actually, if you got there, it would just be more people living their lives, doing their best, but in a different part of the map. Mm. Um, if you want to expand your map, if you want to make your map richer, if you want to be able to communicate more successfully with lots of different types of people who have different maps from you, and I, I've certainly found this, um, obviously, traveling to um, different parts of the world and working in, uh, you know, for example, Saudi Arabia, they've got a very different map to um, Western secular uh, UK, where I come from. Mm. And you have to adapt to it if you want to communicate successfully with those people. Um, so it's worth looking at enriching your map and uh, trying to make sure that it conforms as, as well as it can to the reality out there. So it's not leading you up a blind alley yeah um, so there are things you can do so um but for example if you've got a belief that's holding you back or it's not serving you um so for example some people stop themselves from exercising because they believe i'm no good at sport never have been never will be no point in exercising actively look for examples where that belief isn't true if you're if the belief is holding you back actively look for examples where that belief isn't true um, also if you are if you tend to make generalizations about things or about people actively look for counter examples so if you uh, if you believe um, for example all salespeople are unprincipled and uh, manipulative as some people do actively look for counter examples find those examples where you know uh, somebody selling you something has actually done a decent thing or helped you out or given you some useful advice because those examples do exist mm. it means you won't miss out on opportunities um, there's always going to be ex exceptions to any generalization and I say there's always going to be exceptions there. <laughs> Even that is Yeah, there's going to be uh, exceptions to that one as well. Um, also beliefs about yourself as well. So if you think that you can't do something that you would like to do, it's worth asking yourself, what would happen if I did do that? Not why can't I do it, but just what would happen if I did? Because sometimes there, there's this big, scary consequence that people think they're going to get if they set out if they start out on in business on their own for example if they leave the comfort of their day job and they start out in business in their own they they might think oh i could never do that um, yeah. 
if you ask yourself what would happen if I did, sometimes it's scary because they literally can't imagine what it would be like. There's just this big white space or blank in their minds. And that's scary. So, you know, some people will see that as, oh, great opportunity. I can carve out some territory here. I can draw my own map. Most people will find that quite scary. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's like in a horror movie uh, where there's some monster lurking in the house or in the ship. And uh, I don't know, like uh, the first Alien movie, for example, if you've ever seen that, for about three, at least half of the movie, it doesn't really appear. You don't really see it. It's just this thing in the darkness that sort of whips people away. You don't see it. The monster you don't see is always scarier than the monster you do see. So when it finally does come into shot, uh, yeah, it's there. You can see it. You can get you can get a sense of it. It's not quite as scary as when you really didn't know what it was. So if you ask yourself what would happen if I did, and you start looking at you know what have other people done when they set up businesses, um, are there rules to follow? Are there procedures to follow that work? Um, can I see some examples of when people have done this successfully? People like me. It expands your map of the world it it it, it enriches it it um, it gives you a sense of more opportunities and perhaps it ch challenges that generalization that I can't do this yeah that makes sense yeah I love that and 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 as you as you keep looking for more and more examples you start to see more too don't you because it's yeah, yeah you do you set that mental filter uh, yeah and and you um, the, the classic example is uh, if you are thinking of buying a new car and maybe you mm. set your mind on the model that you want, all of a sudden, especially if it's a new car, you may not have seen any of them before, all of a sudden you start seeing them everywhere. Yeah. Um, you think, oh yeah, okay, that's, there's the car I'm going to get. <laughs> and you just hadn't noticed them before because that wasn't in your mind. Yeah. Yeah, this is fantastic, Andy. I, I love I love this particular one. The map's not the map is not the territory, um, because it's huge. Just by um, um, understanding that that one, it mm. it increases potential so much. Um, potential becomes unlimited. Um, yeah, yeah. It, I, it, it's like the fundamental one, I think. Um, people, if they don't get that, then they're not really going to get NLP. But yeah. it, fortunately, it's not a hard thing to get. Once you get your head around it, it really does open up a load of possibilities. Okay, so that's the first half of the interview. More about the principles of NLP next week. You can find my excellent interviewer, Deb Johnston, at debjohnston.com.au. That's Johnston with an E. Next time, we're talking about more principles of NLP and how to apply them. See you next time.